Hello and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm Ann Gordon here with my friend and Chavruta Yardena Osband, our Daf of the day, Masachet Kitubot, Daf Tet, page nine. Um, now we're going to enter, I would say, what is a particularly typical, difficult Kitubot passage, or the whole Daf really, where the discussion about, um, you know, the prerequisites, let's say, or the expectations of marriage get a little bit complicated. We have uh, a statement by Rebel Elzer. It's at the very, very top of the daf. His name is actually on the previous daf. And the case is a groom, a chatan, who says, I encountered, and I'm going to translate this carefully, I encountered an unobstructed opening. Um, so we're talking about a groom on his wedding night with his purportedly virgin bride, and where his claim is that, um, that she wasn't actually a virgin, and the commentaries treat this as a matter of, you know, did she bleed or did she not bleed? And this is a whole other discussion beyond what I want to get into on the staff. This is just the, the context of the staff, right? Um, and that claim, then the Gemara says, I mean, Rebel Azar says, and that's the point here, the, the suggestion here or the position by Rebel Azar is that he, he is then believed in that he renders her prohibited to himself because the the claim is basically that she's committed adultery, you know, against the betrothal, and therefore, you know, now they're they're prohibited to each other. Now, where does this apply? And so then the first the whole first Ahmad talks about, you know, when is Rabbi really talking about it? What cases could he possibly be talking about it? And then the Gemara says, I don't know, halfway through, towards uh, the bottom, uh, somewhere halfway through. Ahmed Aleph, right? The question is, isn't Rebel Ezra talking about it in a case where there is already like, you know, specific jealousy and warning and yichud, right? And that there's like a, a whole incident that has taken place as, for example, the incident that took place between Devin and Batsheva. And, and then, further down on the on the Amud, going on to the next um, Amud, we have in fact this discussion, specifically about Devin and Batsheva. Now, what's the story about David Ben Sheva? I refer you to Shmuel, right? To say for Shmuel, um, where, you know, what happens? David Amalek, just to recap the Navi, the prophet, right? David Amalek catches sight of Batsheva bathing on her roof, and she's very beautiful, and he's the king, so he can call her, you know, get his aides to go bring her to him and insist, right? And so they sleep together, and then, you know, as far as he's concerned, or as far as, as he presumably would have been concerned at that time, Shalom al-Israel, like he did his deed and he's done and that's it. He's the king, it's his prerogative, fine. But she gets pregnant and because she gets pregnant, he gets all nervous because now she's, you know, the question, at least in the in the surface of the text of the Navi, it appears that she's, you know, committed adultery because she's gotten pregnant at a time when her husband is away at war and because he's away at war, you know, he can't be the father of her baby. Um, now, the the way the story is told in the Navi, basically what happens is that when David gets all concerned about this, then he sends orders to um, to his general at the front, that's Yoav, um, to send back Uriah Hachiti, that's the husband of Bathsheba, to send him back. He's got to consult with him or whatever, right? So they send him home, and then um, and um, David wants King David wants to send him home. You know, like, he's home on leave, as it were, for a day or two, let him go home to his wife and let it transpire, right, that 
the, you know, that the baby is going to be purportedly his, right? Meaning her own husband's because he had this leave, but he's a real soldier and he refuses to, to spend time with his wife because he says it's not fair to all the other men at the front. Okay, so this is basically, you know, of greater concern to David. So he again sends to his general. He says, put him on the front lines. And on the front lines, he ends up, of course, getting killed because, you know, it's a war. Um, so that's the plain sense of the text in the Navi, right, in the in Sefer Shmuel. Um, the way the Gemara presents it, and in various passages, this is a very short passage about it, but in different places in the text of Chazal, there are attempts to reread, whitewash, um, interpret in a different sense than the plain sense of the text, because, and I do think that the, you know, that the motive here is very, is out of very great concern for what is David HaMelech doing, right? Because on the, on the face of it, uh, when you dig a little deeper, meaning it's really hard to read Sefer Shmuel and find David HaMelech, you know, squeaky clean. Not only that, later in the Navi, right, Natan HaNavi, the prophet Natan, Nathan, comes to him and tells him, you know, uses a parable and everything, and kind of points out his guilt and this terrible sin to him. And there's like a pause in the text. And and David HaMelech says, Chatati Lashem, I sinned to God. And in the, in the prophet, in the book of Shmuel, it, it's um, God forgives him. But the point is that, even David HaMelech, in the plain sense of the text, thinks he has done wrong. But the Gemara wants to diminish the wrong that he did, or at least many of the passages in the Gemara. So here we have, So what happens is, of course, also, we should note, after all of this happens, after Uriah gets killed, right, David marries Batsheva. Batsheva is the mother of Shlomo HaMelech, King Solomon. So, you know, it's it's not, it might not be the healthiest love affair in the history of mankind, to put it lightly, but on the other hand, there's no prohibition afterwards of them being together. Well, if they if there's no prohibition about them being together, then it must be, right, that there wasn't an act of adultery going on because then they would have been prohibited to each other. So the Gemara says, well, it wasn't adultery, rather it was that she was forced. She wasn't there willingly. He, you know, he's the king, he paged her, he called her, she came. And so then because it wasn't willing on her part, then the sages decided that that's not the same thing as being forbidden. Okay, fine. I mean, maybe not fine, but that's the way it's presented. And then we have a statement of Shmuel Bar Nachmani, who again is our um, midrashist par excellence. He said that Rav Yonatan said, And then we have a very different kind of interpretation, which says, one second, we know that there was a practice of when soldiers would go out to war, they would write a, a conditional divorce to their wives to say, you know, in the event that he doesn't return, God forbid, from the war, the he wants to enable her to be able to remarry um, rather than being stuck, you know, waiting to determine whether he was killed or, miss, or missing in action or, or what's really going on. Um, and, and so in that case, then, we can say, well, by the time Uriah doesn't come home, Right? It kicks that conditional divorce into, into action so that retroactively, you know, meaning from the time that he first set out to war, she's already divorced, which then means at the time that Devin and Bathsheba were together, 
it, it, lo and behold, it turns out that they were divorced. And so therefore, there's no act of adultery because she's already a divorced woman. And maybe it's not very polite, but it's not, it's not an act of adultery. And therefore, they can continue along to get married afterwards. So there's clearly an interest in the Gemara to, to kind of, it's a very troubling story, meaning the actions of David HaMelech, as they are told in the book of Shmuel, Samuel are very troubling. So the Gemara is rightfully troubled by these things and tries to, you know, tell them in a different way in, so, to the extent that, you know, the the whole story here becomes an example of how it could possibly be that the accusation that is made, meaning adultery, is not really going to come to see fruition. Look, the story of, of, of David and Bathsheba, and Anne, I think you'll agree with this, is a story that it's, it's a problematic story and it bothers Chazal. And so there's a series of Gemaras. This isn't the only one. This is probably one of the shorter passages that sort of grapples with it. And as you said, is it better to say that she was raped as opposed to sort of being a willing participant in the adultery? I, I, I'm not clear. Somehow Chazal seems to be more comfortable with that narrative than saying they were both willing participants. But we see a variety of sort of Gemaras one one in Sanhedrin that sort of uh, changes the tone of how the shot of the story actually appears in Shmuel. Yeah, I think that's a fair thing to say. I think that Chazal are bothered. I think that there are many different ways of many different attempts to make it better. Um, and we'll talk about more of them as we encounter them. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. I, you know, look, I think the staff in general, it's not a, a, a great job. But, you know, a big piece of what's talked about here is this concept of, you know, patach patuach matzati, right? The idea that sort of uh, based on that first sexual encounter, uh, that it's clear, you know, by there not being blood, although that's not what is explicitly said in that statement, uh, that the bride was not a virgin. Now, some of this will get resolved tomorrow. And this stop, it's very shocking. I'm sort of going to leave us with a cliffhanger. But the first part of Amud Yud, of uh, Daf Yud, actually sort of rounds us out in a much more palatable way. Uh, but when we first encounter it on Dap Tet, uh, it does not appear that way. So I'm going to sort of leave the more of a discussion about it tomorrow. Um, but at the end, I'm just going to read the end of Ahmed Bed. You know, as they continue their discussion about this, um, they, you know, it says the following. Amar Rav Yehuda Amar Shmuel. So Rav Yehuda said uh, that Shmuel said the following. Ha'omar petach patuach matzati, right? If someone says, I you know, I have this, uh, literally what it means, you know, this open opening I found, right? So she, he, the, the husband is basically deemed, uh, we believe him, and then she lures, loses her ketubah. So Rav Yosef says, right, why, does, why do we need the statement of Rav Yehud and Shmuel? And I think this is a great question. We've seen this before, but we, I don't think we've ever actually explicitly have said this on this podcast itself. What is Rav Yosef asking? What he's saying is Tanena, right? He's saying, what's, what's he's teaching us? We learned this already. We're going to see it's a Mishnah later on in Dab Yud Bet Amad Aleph. Right? So later on, there's a Mishnah that says that a man, right, Chatan who eats in the, fa- in the house of his father in law, Yehuda. Okay, after Erusain, without, so that remember, after the first part of the marriage, now again, 
that word is not in there of Erosin, but that's the context of it. And we'll get to that Mishnah later on. Specifically in the area of Yehuda, without witnesses, right? Meaning you wanted to have witnesses to, witnesses to show that they were never alone, but they were basically alone. In other words, in Yehuda, they were allowed to eat alone. Okay, they were allowed to have Yehud. Um, he can't make a claim about, uh, about her virginity uh, later on. Right. And uh, because we say that, you know, because basically he was secluded with her and he could have been the one himself who actually engaged in, the, in a sexual encounter with her, who had intercourse with her. And that's why by the time they get to Kedushin and the wedding night, she's not a virgin anymore. And then the Gemara goes on. So in other words, based on this Mishnah, this Mishnah is sort of saying the same halacha that Rabbi Yehuda and Shmuel is saying. Right. What that Mishnah is saying is, is that if you have a case where, you know, there was a possibility that the couple itself before the wedding could have been secluded together and could have engaged, could have had sexual contact. He's not allowed to make that claim. The inverse being, if they never had that seclusion, he can make that claim and then she would lo lose her ketubah. So the question Rabbi Yosef is asking is, what does Rabbi Yehuda's statement add? Why does Rabbi Yehuda have to teach this? And so the Gemara goes on to say, and so I found this to be very interesting, that um, that essentially that in Yehuda, there was one custom that they actually uh, were uh, were allowed uh, to be alone. Right. But in the Galil. And so therefore, in Yehuda, they could never make such a claim. They could never make a claim of there being um, of the possibility that she maybe was not a virgin from somebody other than him because they were allowed to be alone. So we wouldn't know you know, if they were or weren't, but in the Galil, they were never left alone so he can make that claim. So I think one thing we haven't really talked about is uh, this idea that there really was like different halacha in different parts of the country, that like different places, we're not talking even about Babel to Israel, we're talking about within Israel itself, the Galil and northern part versus Yehuda, which is, you know, around Yerushalayim, they did, they did have different customs. And, uh, you know, and then we see here where that sort of impacts the halacha. So the Gemara says, Ulamai, right? And so, you know, you know, for what? In other words, how is this claim actually directed? Elo if it's to make her forbidden to him, okay? Behuda amai lo. Then in Yehuda, why would the claim not be credible? In other words, if he's certain that he didn't have a sexual relationship with her, and then in Yehuda, and then he finds out that she's not a virgin, then she should have committed adultery, and that claim should be okay. Right, So it's not that he's seeking to make her lose her ketubah, right? Um, where he makes, when he makes a claim, rather, right? So we're saying it's not that he wants her to lose her marriage contract. That's not why someone would make the claim. And remember this, because this will be important for tomorrow. What it's basically referring to a case where he makes the claim of petach patuach matzati, right? He has this, you know, she didn't seem to be a virgin when they had their first sexual encounter, right? And so the Gemara says, you know, is that really what the claim is? It's not really about the ketubah. And the Gemara says, no, right? It's really that he makes a claim because there was no actual blood. Now, tomorrow, we're going to see a little bit more. It's going to get softened a little bit. I wanted to read this passage because of this highlighted difference they make between 
Yehuda and uh, and um, that they make between Yehuda and the Galil, which I think just from a practical point of view, I think it's interesting that around issues of Yehud and seclusion, there seem to have been different practices of how that worked with you had the two ceremonies of Erusin and Kedushin and that different things were done. And especially because we see how much Patok Patuach Matsati is discussed and what a claim it would be, the fact that it was allowed at all in Yehuda is actually shocking to me. Um, so I really, you know, wanted to highlight sort of the, 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 the difference in halakha and location. Um, tomorrow, we'll talk more about this whole thing about the Petach Patuach Matsati, the idea of not finding blood after that first sexual encounter and how it relates to the Ketubah and really how Chazal was trying to, to protect people. That's our DAF discussion for the day. Thank you for joining us. Rank us, review us where you get your podcast. Come talk to us on our Facebook page and tell us what you think of this stuff. Thank you to Rabbi Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. And until tomorrow, go and learn. <laughs>